liberty in our lifetimes in a free state of our own. That's the vision. That's the dream. We are building it in New Hampshire. I'm Eric Brakey, your host and renegade statesman for the Porcupine Report. Welcome to your source for Porcupine news and free-range conversation on matters of liberty. All right, let's hop into the show. Hello and welcome everyone to the very first episode of the Porcupine Report. It means so much to me that you are tuning in uh, for this first episode of what is a new show produced by the Free State Project. I am your host, your renegade statesman, the new executive director of the Free State Project, Eric Brakey. And uh, if you're new to the show, which of course you are because this is episode one, you should know that I'm going to endeavor to bring you a new episode of this show every single Wednesday with news about what's going on with uh, the cause of liberty as it relates to both free staters in New Hampshire and just, well, what we care about happening across the country. So we're going to be sharing liberty news and also having great conversations with people who are doing great work advancing the cause of freedom. And uh, today we're going to be focusing on Defend the Guard, which passed in the New Hampshire House of Representatives recently, and talking with a state legislator, Tom Mannion, who was a key, uh, a key individual in leading the charge in the New Hampshire State House there. But before we get into that, I want to very quickly tell you about something very exciting happening this Saturday, uh, February 3rd. This Saturday, February 3rd, is Porcupine Day. Uh, it is the anniversary of uh, the. It is the eighth anniversary of the day that the twenty thousandth libertarian pledged to move to New Hampshire, triggering the move for the Free State Project. And uh, in the years since, people continue to move to help create the Liberty Homeland here in New Hampshire. So this Saturday, February third, we are celebrating, and I would love it so much if you can join us. So join us for good times, good food, and good people. Uh, enjoy a few drinks and delicious hors d'oeuvres. It's going to be at the Milliard Museum in Manchester from 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock. Connect with New Hampshire porcupines, hear from leaders, including myself, about the forward vision for the FSP, and catch a sneak preview of the forthcoming Free State Project documentary. Very exciting. I'm looking forward to that one. But to celebrate the launch of this show, we are having a flash sale on the um, on por for Porcupine Day tickets. So for the next 24 hours only, you can go to fsp.org slash porkday. And while you're there, you can enter the discount code PORKREPORT for 50% off your Porcupine Day ticket. Act quickly. This is really, this is a flash sale. It won't last. It's just to celebrate the launch of this show and how much I appreciate you joining us. Uh, for the very first episode of the Porcupine Report. All right, let's get into the news. So as I mentioned, something monumental happened. I, I think history is in the making. I'm very excited about this. The New Hampshire House of Representatives, in a historic vote with a bipartisan majority of 187 to 182, passed Defend the Guard legislation to, br to bring uh, the New Hampshire Guardsmen home from undeclared foreign wars. The New Hampshire House of Representatives is just the second legislative body in America to pass Defend the Guard legislation after the Arizona Senate passed it last year. 
And I'll tell you, my own experiences, I in in my home state of Maine, where I still serve in the Maine State Senate as I finish out my last term before I make the move to New Hampshire, um, I was the sponsor of Defend the Guard last year. And I was proud, you know, after 10 years, you know, of, of folks fighting for Defend the Guard, right? Actually, little fun fact, the first legislature where Defend the Guard was ever uh, was ever put forward was in the main legislature in 2011 by then state representative Aaron Libby of Waterboro, Maine, who's <laughs> since gone back to his apple farm and um, like like so many good politicians do, the, the good ones, right? The, you go, you serve, you go back to the farm like George Washington did. Well, he sponsored Defend the Guard legislation for the very first time in 2011. And at the time, it got 13 votes out of 151 in the main House of Representatives. Ten years later, I was excited. I guess more like 12 years later, I was excited that we got all the way up to 53 votes in the main House of Representatives, a third of the body, not a majority, you know, still far short, but further than it had ever come. And exactly one vote in the main Senate. I made a compelling case. I did the best I could. I guess I was unpersuasive to my fellow senators who are a little too uh, worried about um, rocking the boat when it comes to the military industrial complex. Um, but that was nothing compared to what happened in the New Hampshire House of Representatives. Tremendous growth in support. Uh, uh, in, in New Hampshire, passing the House. In a moment, we're going to hear from a representative Mannion about how exactly this happened, this monumental victory happened. It still has to pass to the Senate. There's much further to go, but a historic moment. But what was really exciting, I mean, of course, it was. I was very excited to, to hear that it passed. That's the most exciting thing. But one of the secondarily most exciting things is the national recognition that's that that this is getting raising awareness about the discontent that so many of our combat veterans have for these forever wars that go on without end in Iraq and Syria and so on. I mean, we just lost troops in Syria just recently. And why are we even over there? We'll talk about that in a moment. But Fox and Friends, Fox and Friends of all places, reported on the passage of Defend the Guard in the New Hampshire House of Representatives and had some really great things to say about it. Hey, Justin, can we cue up that clip? The New Hampshire House, New Hampshire State House, has passed a bill that would require the United States Congress to declare war before deploying the New Hampshire National Guard. Uh, quote from the bill real quick reads as follows. Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution vests the Congress with the exclusive power to declare war. And by abdicating the war powers to the executive branch, the United States Congress has failed to follow the United States Constitution and the intent of the founders, Pete. This caught my eye. It's re a really interesting development. Right now, this is New Hampshire only. And New Hampshire is simply pointing out that it's supposed to be Congress that declares war. It has become an executive branch function. And as a result, unless the Congress declares war, New Hampshire doesn't have to send troops for foreign wars. I, I mean, I, to me, it makes a lot of sense. I spent most of my career as a National Guardsman, deployed multiple times with the National Guard to foreign wars. We got used to the idea that state National Guard are part of expeditionary forces, which is not traditionally the use of a National Guard. Uh, and so this is New Hampshire saying, 
We don't trust how the federal government's going to use our troops, so we're willing to commit them when the American people, through their elected branch in Congress, commits those troops to a foreign war, then you can. I love this idea. I, 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 and I, I, I'm sure the National Guard Bureau is, oh, no. Okay. I, I love states exerting their influence through a, a system of federalism and the idea of protecting the prerogative of why are we sending some young guy from New Hampshire to the eastern province of Afghanistan when you have a northern border problem or floods that happen in New Hampshire and they're not there to be able to provide support for that. Yeah. It's a pretty, it's an interesting development. You'll be interested to see whether other legislatures do this and how the military reacts to it. But why are states having to tell the federal government abide by the letter of the Constitution? I love it as well, mm -hmm. um, but it's an unfortunate state of affairs when the states are having to say abide by the text. No doubt. I tell you, I grew up watching Fox News, and I never expected to hear support for uh, constitutional uh, uh, limitations on fe the federal government's ability to, you know, send our troops to war from Fox News. That's amazing. Yeah. I think it's great. It shows how far we've come. But as we, you can see on screen, we're joined by Representative Tom Mannion, everyone. Um, Tom, uh, Representative Mannion, let me introduce you to everyone first. So uh, Tom is a veteran. Uh, of the uh, United States Marine Corps, where he served as an infantry rifleman and was deployed twice to Iraq. Um, he's a free stater who moved to New Hampshire from Massachusetts just three years ago. And on a promise to defend freedom and not to mass up New Hampshire, like I know people are often worried about from those folks from Massachusetts, um, the people of Pelham elected Tom as their representatives in the New Hampshire, as in the New Hampshire House. And in his first term, he's already making history championing Defend the Guard legislation, one of the individuals who really worked this through the New Hampshire House, seeing it passed in a, a, only the second legislative body in America. Mm -hmm. Representative Mannion, thanks so much for joining me. It's so awesome to have you on. Thanks for all the thanks. work you're doing. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is uh, fantastic. I'm glad I'm on the inaugural episode. This is cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew on the first episode, I was like, what are we going to talk about? Well, what am I most excited about? Defend mm -hmm. the Guard passing the New <laughs> Hampshire House. I mean... <laughs> It, yeah. it, I just remember 12 you know, years ago when I was just getting started in, in politics, I was just like a young kind of ragamuffin, like liberty, you know, activist getting involved with kind of the Ron Paul effort. Mm. And, uh, and knowing that one of my mentors, Representative Aaron Libby, had sponsored it in the new, in the main house and it got 13 votes out of 151. It's like, wow. And, and I'm told that the governor, the governor of Maine at the time, Paul LePage, pulled representative Libby into his office. Like you got to withdraw this bill. What are you doing with this? This is mm -hmm. radical. I don't even know what to do with this. And he, credit to him. He uh, said, well, I don't expect it to pass, but I am not withdrawing this bill. It is important. And we're going to get a roll call vote. Absolutely. And, uh, and, 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 and 12 years later to see it actually passing like it has in the Arizona Senate and mm -hmm. in the, uh, now the New Hampshire house, it's, it's amazing to see the support that has grown but it's also, I guess, depressing in a way, too, because it really is a sign that all these years later, the forever wars are still going on and yep. people are finally, finally waking up and getting to the boiling point over this after we've been in these wars for like, you know, it's been 20, oh, yeah. 23 years almost now. Oh, yeah. It's, and it's like in 
it's like you were mentioning earlier with Jordan, like people like one of the first things I saw on Twitter was just like, why do we have people in Jordan? Like it, and the yeah. list just goes on like all these places where our guys are forward deployed. They're basically hung out there as a, a, a dare against our enemy saying, Hey, yeah. our guys are exposed out here. You should do something. So then we can retaliate. And like uh, specifically Arizona, uh, there was Arizona guardsmen that were wounded in, in that uh, attack this week. So like, yeah. that's, guardsmen again once again on the front lines getting wounded in a country they shouldn't be in yeah yeah well, you know it, well now it's interesting so let you know I, I i know kind of my thoughts on it but let me ask you what would you say to someone because i hear this all the time right you know the national guard is in an interesting position because they've got a state mission and a federal mission mm -hmm. and the state, it doesn't have the authority to stop them from deploying on their federal mission. That is up to the federal government. And who are you as a, new, a puny New Hampshire representative to tell these our great and benevolent overlords in Washington, D.C. that they can't have our troops? What would you All say we're asking in the bill is that those benevolent overlords do their job first and declare war. If they really want to uh, to take our guys, uh, federalize them, send them overseas to combat, they have to put their name on the dotted line saying this, you know, we all support this. I'm representing my constituents in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, wherever it may be. And they're going to put their name on the dotted line for that war declaration so that we, the voters, can then go to the ballot box and vote right. those warmongers out. I mean, that that's I mean, that's exactly it. Right. You know, it's what what um, Madison said, you know, right, that that history shows that the executive branch always has the most to gain from war and therefore um, is the most prone to it. And therefore, it is yeah. with studied care. We place the power to declare war in the hands of the legislature. And of course, yeah. I mean, we haven't had a declaration of war since World War Two. We've had certain kinds of congressional authorizations <laughs> you know, some them pretty yeah. weak, like AUMFs, where we're yes. not declaring war, but we're going to tell the president, we're giving you the authority to decide. So we've got some plausible deniability and all this, but mm -hmm. at least like with Afghanistan, you know, there was an AUMF, at least with mm -hmm. Iraq, there was an AUMF. I mean, yeah. it's all short of the constitutional standard, but at least there's something, but like Syria, yeah. like I remember yes. Barack Obama went to Congress to get an AUMF for Syria Mm -hmm. And and the, the American public, this was 2014, was an uproar after the disasters in Iraq and yep. Afghanistan and Libya. They said no. And they called their congressman. And they said, no, we yep. are not invading Syria. And what happened? They didn't even vote on it. They withdrew it. And, they, and Barack Obama said, well, this was just a formality anyway. We, we've, we're we pretty yep. sure we have the authority as it is. So we're putting troops in Syria anyway. Yep. And of course, you look at it, right? What is the authority? They point to like an AUMF from 2001, which was passed yes. by Al-Qaeda, and instead they launched a war for Al-Qaeda, giving weapons to you know radical Islamists in Syria, yep. allied with Al-Qaeda, who became ISIS. To Yep, to, that's to exactly what happened. And the pro that, that 2001 AUMF, like at the time, it was it, like, you know, 9-11 had happened. So like a lot of congressmen were just like, yeah, sure, whatever you need, uh, Mr. President, right? Like go get yeah. the bad guys. The problem is it was just so broadly worded that it's like, it, I think the number of countries that it has authorized military action in is somewhere in like 22, 23 different countries around the world. Some are in like Southeast Asia for like military operations, whatever yeah. they may be. I think that there was a last year, it was uh, Matt Gates had a uh, general from the Department of Defense down in front of the uh, the committee. And we, we apparently funded a coup in Niger, 
using that exact same authorization. That's how they funded it. And it like we trained the militants that went in yeah. there and started a coup. And it's just like, oh, well, you know, they're tangentially related to maybe somebody that had something to do with 9-11. And that's how the AUMFs are written. It's just so broadly defined. And in the last vote that went before the Senate last year with uh, Senator Rand Paul uh, to repeal the 2001 AUMF only got 10 votes. So it's not going anywhere. Like if you, this whole attitude of, yeah. well, like I, like I've went and I spoke, it's like, well, if you really want to change the way that this is working, you just need to repeal the AUMFs. Like that's not going to happen. That option is not on the table. Yeah. Because I mean, Congress, Congress loves the, you know, plausible deniability yep. they have, right. They get to keep collecting all the money from the military industrial complex <laughs> into their campaign coffers to keep the war machine running. Yep. But they never have to go to their constituents and justify supporting these wars because they never have to vote on it. They nope. get the and they best just, of everything. And they could just point at the president and be like, well, you know, it's in the president's hands. They're like, you know, we gave him the authorization. He can end it whenever he wants. And it's like, oh, OK, great. So then that's why, like, we're in this paradigm where it's like everybody just blames the president for the wars when it should be Congress that's to be to blame. Right. Yeah. Well, all right. So let's back up a minute, Tom, because mm. we're both obviously yep. very passionate about I'm fired up. And, <laughs> well, I am, too. And I'm I'm so excited about what you pulled off here. But let's let's step back a minute and we'll get back to defend the guard. So let's mm. talk about you. So obviously, this is very this is a very the cause you care very much about. I know that mm. you're you know, as we mentioned, you are um, you're a, a, a veteran of the Marine Corps. You did two tours in Iraq. Why is this? issue so important to you why when you are serving your first term in the new hampshire house are you not like trying to uh you know tweak some little regulatory thing that doesn't matter at all why are you going after the military industrial complex and trying to fight against forever war why is that like your oh. charge in your first term should aren't, aren't people telling you like take it slow buddy you know uh, you're in your first term You'd be surprised at my uh, old home day in Pelham here. I uh, met several people. I, I wrote an op-ed in our little tiny uh, newspaper for our town. And there was people that were coming up here recognized. Like I was wearing a defend the guard t-shirt at our old home day at the GOP booth. And they're like, yes, yes. And they're all about it. So there's a lot of support in awesome. the town for this. But as far as like my, uh, so uh, I was deployed to Iraq in 05 and 07. That was the surge, right? That's where like they were putting all as many people as they possibly could. There was a stop loss on the army. You weren't allowed to leave. Uh, the army guys were going on like 18 month deployments. They were sending everybody they could possibly uh, get in country. So I was there during the surge and the attitude of everybody on the ground, including some of the leadership was just like, what is the mission here? Like we're clearing these towns. We're looking for insurgents, but the insurgents wouldn't be here if we weren't here. What is the mission? Like we had an election and the people in Al Anbar province didn't even like the constitution that we tried to shove down their throat. Like, so like we're there providing security for these elections and they're all like, no, we don't want anything to do with the government that you're trying to force upon us. And it's like, okay, so what do we do? We just sit here and force them to have a democracy they don't want? Like for how long? And that, that's like, I never had the opportunity to go to Afghanistan. That was the entire reason I, I enlisted to go to Afghanistan to go find bin Laden you know, never got that chance, got lied into Iraq twice. And between like my 05 deployment and my 07 deployment, we were supposed to be doing this trans uh, transition where it's like hand off operational, like, uh, you know, the operations to the Iraqi army and the Iraqi uh, police. It just didn't happen. Like they 
it never materialized. Like we would do these clearing ops and the, the army, the Iraqi army were supposed to be taking point. We went two houses into this massive weeks long clearing up op operation along the Syrian border. And we're just like, whatever, take them out. Like just send them back. Like they're not even helping. They don't know how to clear doors after all the training we allegedly gave them, you know, the millions we spend training these guys they're, they're just don't care. Like none of them cared. So we just sent them home. We did the entire operation ourselves, massive waste of time, waste of life, like it, it, it's like after all that, we pull out and then ISIS just like seizes the entire area that I was operating in the entire like, yeah. you know, Western Al Anbar province. And it's like all for nothing. Then we had to go back. We still have yeah. people in Iraq right now. Like we went back to Al-Assad after we pulled out of the country. We're still there. We're out there yeah. getting like, but and the, so rest like the, this, and the rest of yeah. the country aligned with Iran. <laughs> Iran. Exactly. After you know, all that. Yeah, we, we basically like we went in there. We took I mean, of course, Saddam Hussein was, you know, terrible, like most of course. like most despots in that region. Yep. But like he was like a geopolitical rival to the Iranians. And he was a buff like his 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 government represented a buffer between the Saudis and the Iranians and had some, mm -hmm. you know, some balance there. Yep. But it totally backfired this whole like this whole, de de you know, democracy, this European style democracy that mm -hmm. the neo the neoconservatives envision was going to yep. happen in Iraq. If you just remove Saddam Hussein and instituted like gave people the Cliff's Notes version of Western civilization, yep. like it didn't work out that way. And, yeah. and it seems like we've just been like to try to placate all of these different geopolitical players like after the fallout of the disaster of iraq like we are just getting caught in conflict yep. after conflict that has nothing to do with us that it, that has no benefit to the american people it's, no. it's wasting our blood wasting our treasure i mean you look at syria you know as i understand it like the whole reason we're in syria was to try to placate the saudis mm -hmm. <laughs> because oh, yeah. they were upset about iraq falling under the sway of the iranians exactly and, and so so to carry on, so like I come back from my second deployment after seeing no progress into like I've been in the Marine Corps four years. There's no way I'm going to reenlist because I'm not going to go back there again. Like, why would I do that? So I get out and I, that's when I find Ron Paul, like 07, 08. Yeah. I, I learn about him. And it's nice to see it was it was refreshing to see a voice from the conservative side that was talking about fiscal responsibility and, and ending the wars when it was unpopular as a Republican to be opposed to the wars. Yeah. Like everybody was all on the George W. Bush bandwagon, the John McCain's, the, all those neocons. They wanted these forever wars. So that's like how I became introduced into like the libertarian uh, philosophy. I was like, oh, I finally found a political home because I wasn't. You know, the Democrats, like they had, like, I'm kind of like socially progressive, I guess, in that way. And some stuff like I let live and let live type attitude that they yeah. used to have before I mean, they become. <laughs> yeah, like like a 90s liberal right before. Exactly. Kind of the left, the left. Yeah, exactly. They've completely when, when changed into a cult now. It's weird. <laughs> so they're their own religion. It, it, that I'm not the 90s liberals. They believed in free speech and yes. civil liberties. And yep. Back I don't know. The, the Trump era just like broke their brains. Yes, exactly. But it's like, so Ron Paul became like my idol. And then, uh, you know, I, I kind of like was on the back burner and all that stuff. And then I learned like a, after lockdowns and all that stuff, and I moved to New Hampshire, I decided I was going to run uh, specifically to uh, help get a, a, a was it emergency, uh, God damn it, a, a state of emergency reform through. Oh, yeah. Because they like that was the one thing from that whole like the, the Republicans did really well in New Hampshire, like uh, locking down all kinds of like, uh, you know, government overreach that was in place. And like one of the yeah. things that we couldn't get through, they couldn't get through. I wasn't there yet. was a uh, state of emergency reform. Yeah. Uh, I managed to, like that's what I ran on. But then as I was running, I, I like ran into uh, Derek Prue, who's with the uh, 
you know, the bring our troops home and the defend the garden, New Hampshire. And he was uh, explaining this bill to me. And I was like, this is amazing. This is like a way for the state to push back against the warmongers in DC. Cause I thought this was like pushing back against the warmongers was just like this dream out there. Like, Oh, well, you know, if I ever decide to run for Congress, maybe I can do something about it, but it's like, no, 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 you can do stuff at the grassroots level here and, and start to make a difference in the world. And I'm like, this, this is exactly it. And yeah. I was just like, I wanted to be the prime sponsor, but I was like a brand new freshman rep. It it, it, it kind of looks bad or, or something like you, you, you kind of get laughed out. It's like, whatever, this this kid doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, yeah. Even though I'm like almost 40, but it's like, they, you know, compared to some of these guys at the state house, I'm a kid, but uh, like they, so they you, gave it to, yeah. a, they gave it to like a senior rep and they're like, you, you're going to be uh prime. But it's like, I was like, I'm going to do everything I can in my power, even as a new guy to just like, I'm, I'm going to build alliances. I'm going to like learn about like who the free staters are in the state house. Like, be like, okay, you guys, we're all on the same page here. You tell people, you tell two people and then they tell two people. And we try to do that across the Republican base. And if the problem is we hit a, with our damn wall, like we have this 50, 50 line in the state house. So it's like half Democrats, half Republicans. If like two or three Republicans say they're going to oppose a bill, it's going to die. So I, not what here, I did, right? Yeah. So what I needed to do is I actually reached across the aisle and I found anti-war progressives. And I was like, well, they you know, still like exist. I was saying, like they're, they're, like, they're increasingly rare species, but they still increasingly exist. rare. And like some of them express frustration about that, that like their party is like it, it, it ends up being like whoever's in the White House. Right. Biden's in the White House. They don't give a damn. They're all like whatever wars Biden wants. He gets same thing with Obama when Obama. Well, I mean, in the White House. Right. Well, what was really sad to see when Trump was in the White House and Trump certainly wasn't perfect and he was nope. there's there's a lot of problems with him. I'm, I'm not i'm not a defender for donald trump but mm -hmm. he did talk about wanting to end some of these wars and bring i mean he he made some i thought somewhat sincere if maybe not mm -hmm. as he wasn't as fully committed to it as i would like to see but efforts to get troops out of syria it was amazing to see is democrats and you can't take our troops out of syria yep. this war yeah, exactly. that congress never even declared congress was trying to say you know, you they were trying to pass legislation to stop the president from taking troops out of the war that Congress never declared. Yeah, exactly. It was like, it was like yeah. bizarro world. And it was yeah. just, you know, it was just so sad to see how this transformation of the Democratic Party that has taken place ever since. I mean, it's like it's like Hillary Clinton. Just they became the party of Hillary Clinton. They yeah. forgot all the civil liberties. They forgot all the anti-war. Um, they forgot who they were from the Bush era. Mm -hmm. When um you know I you know I remember growing up because you know I, I I it pains me to admit when I was a younger younger man when I was still in in high school you know mm -hmm. we we invaded Iraq in two thousand and three and at the time I was watching a lot of Fox News and Bill O'Reilly and Sean mm -hmm. Hannity and I was kind of brainwashed into all of this and I. I, it's 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 painful for me to admit but I was a big cheerleader for all this as mm -hmm. I know a lot of people who are libertarians today kind of are reformed neoconservatives who realized the lie they'd been sold upon. Yeah. You know, when these folks preyed upon our, our decency and our patriotism to convince us that the good thing to do was to launch mass murder campaigns with no congressional authorization and that have yep. go on to this very day. But, um, but, uh, but I remember like coming to a point because of Ron Paul and reading the revolution and, and finally like, coming really to a hard, hard realization that these wars are evil. They're mm -hmm. wasteful of taxpayer money. They're wasteful of the blood of our soldiers. Yeah. And, uh, and finally coming to some of my left, my left wing friends and making the hard admission 
that they were right. Yeah. You were right about these wars only within a few years time for them to turn around and <laughs> tell me, actually, I was right back then. They were wrong. <laughs> we fighting all these wars because Hillary Clinton told us so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, it's, like, it, I, I, it's, it's so it's so sad the way that tribalism works. To yes. just kind of like people are just rooting for their team yeah. rather than actually standing firm on, on principles. Yeah. Like Ron Paul taught us to do. Exactly. Exactly. And it's like the, the good news is there was uh, I think it was 22 of the Democrats plus two of the independents. One was a Democrat uh, voted for defend the guard because like I, what I ended up doing is I, I gave the floor speech and then I got one of the, the progressives, Ellen Reed, to give the parliamentary inquiry. And she did a masterful job to flag. It was mm. kind of just like flagging to her side like. Hey guys, it's okay to be anti-war. It's okay to side with the crazy free stater guy over there that you might not like, because what he's saying is true. It's yeah. in, like, and if it weren't for that, we would not have passed it out of the house because there was, we had 26 neocons in, in the party still on the Republican side that voted against it. So, so they haven't crossed over and become Democrats yet. Like Bill Crystal. <laughs> no, not yet. No, I, I think they're they're holding out hope that like all the free staters get bored and like run leave the state house or something. I don't know. How's that working out for Nikki Haley? <laughs> We're not going anywhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, it's so funny to me. Uh, you know, it's kind of a side topic, but but not so much. I mean, watching Nikki Haley. Of course, you had the big. You know, uh, the the presidential primary in new hampshire yeah. everyone was watching new hampshire and nikki haley people were thinking maybe she's got a chance and you know i guess she got a lot of votes from independents but like you look at the votes she got it was like among republican voters it was three to one against her yeah. um and it's so funny to, for me to hear her talk about being a fiscal conservative right it's like going back to like the old kind of bush era where it's like I'm a fiscal conservative because I'm willing to talk about entitlement mm -hmm. reform and Donald Trump isn't. And hey, that's fair. Look, there's fair conversations we need to have about entitlement reform. Sure. But how do you call yourself a fiscal conservative when you're just saying, well, we want to cut spending on Social Security so that we can transfer it over to the empire to fight trillion dollar wars that go on without any end? How, how do you yeah. react to that as someone who, ser who served to yeah. someone like Nikki Haley? talking about being a fiscal conservative while ramping up the war spending. It like people like her disgust me and like she hides behind the flag. It's like I she does that uh well I'm a wife of a service person. It's like okay, well when you are in the I, I don't know if I can say boy, if you're in the sandbox and you're watching your guys get like blown to hell. Yeah. And it's like if you yourself do that, I think your attitude would be a little bit different. It's it's like I run into this, especially even some of the, like the neocons that have ser served, right? Like I, there's this attitude amongst like um, service members where it's like, it's like, it's like, okay, that's cool. That's great. So where, where were you? You deployed to Iraq. It's like, oh, I was on Al-Assad Air Base and I ate three meals a day and then went home after six months. And I was like, oh, great, cool. Well, I, I uh, got blown up by VBIEDs uh, yeah. and got mortared every day and we, we were kicking doors in and you never knew if there was going to be a machine gun nest when that door opened. And it's like, uh, I think our, our deployments were a little bit different. So I think uh, we should probably uh, realize that we're not really the same. Yeah. So this discussion can't really happen on equal footing. You know, I'll tell you, you know, so in Maine, um, a guy who was the big, big um, kind of the grassroots champion, you know, working mm. the outside game on Defend the Guard was a good friend of mine who um, named uh, uh, 
Aaron Rollins, who's a retired sergeant from the main army national guard. He served multiple combat deployments in Iraq. Mm. Uh, Sadly, he recently passed away, but um, I know, you know, when it was in committee in Maine, I don't know if you had a similar experience in New Hampshire, Um, but we had veterans there, combat veterans, you know, supporting it. But in came the adjutant general of the Maine army national guard arguing, uh, well, one, he didn't, he didn't make a very compelling case that, you know, that these wars were not unconstitutional. He just kind of made the argument that we don't really have the authority. The state doesn't have the authority to do this. Um, and, and further, you know, he, and this was the argument we heard over and over again, which was, you know, if the state of Maine were to pass this, I'm sure like hear this argument in every state that considers it is that it could jeopardize funding from the federal level. Now there's a lot of legal arguments I won't go into at some actual protections there. There was a great letter from the ACLU of West Virginia outlining some of the statutory protections for state funding for, for national guards. I won't, you know, that's a Mm -hmm. much longer story, but, um, I'll always remember, you know, you know, after that hearing, you know, walking out of the committee room with Sergeant Rollins and him just turning to me. And of course he, um, as he told me, like, so he lost, uh, he lost a, a very good friend in Iraq. Mm. And I think he always had a little bit of survivor's guilt about it because yeah. he, he told me like he, um, um, his friend was sitting in the seat that he was supposed to be sitting in yeah. and, um, and Aaron came home and he didn't. And he told me, you know, for all these politicians and all these generals who are talking about funding, you know, Oh, if we if we if we if we say that we aren't going to send our National Guardsmen off into these wars that Congress doesn't care enough to even declare it, it that we might lose funding, that we might not get an extra Humvee or we might not get a few million dollars here. It's like I wish that they would just look my buddy's mother in the face and tell her that the death of her son in Iraq was worth it because the mm-hmm. state got a few million dollars out of the deal. Yeah. yeah. How do you how do you. um when that argument, I'm sure that argument came up in New Hampshire. Oh yeah. How, how do you tackle that? And and how did and how did um, ultimately you guys won the day in in convincing yeah. people that uh, either the threat's not real or at the end of the day there's something more important than money at stake. How, how did that fold uh, unfold? It it was a mixed bag um, in the committee. So everything comes out of our committee with a recommendation. There's no bills that never make it through the committee. They all get a public hearing. When we had our public hearing. The only two people that spoke in opposition of like the dozen or so that showed up that day was the adjutant general's office. So it was the deputy adjutant general in there, not the adjutant general himself. And then the uh, legislative liaison to our state veterans advisory committee, which and they had. So this is this has been a, a real pain point for me. It irritates me to no end. This organization is created by our law, RSA, and their job is to advise the governor and the legislature about anything to do with veterans. And they have on their panel of voting members, it's like the VFWs there, the American Legion's there, like, you know, Rolling Thunder, a whole bunch of these veteran organizations. And the fact that they would unanimously vote against Defend the Guard was like offensive to me, like, like beyond like words. 
And like I ever since that that like when I learned that I started attending these SVAC meetings and I feel like the voting members there are severely disconnected from the modern veterans. Like there's a generational gap here. I don't know what it is with some of these Vietnam guys, like the guy like and that's the majority of their voter base. They seem more okay with the status quo, and I don't understand why. Like they've heard some theories where part of it's like I got drafted, so everyone should have to serve. Yeah, yeah, like something yeah. like. And I don't, I don't get it. Like, I like the, the, there's sure. no voting member on SVAC that represents me. Like the anti-war specifically, but pretty much anybody who served in the Iraq and Afghanistan war. Like the the age is just like a 20 year gap between all the voting members and me. They do not represent me, but their name is the State Veterans Advisory Committee. So this yeah. unanimous vote to me is offensive. Like I, I it's, it's something I'm going to look at into the next legislative year because like we can't file any more bills for this one, but if I run, you know, I'm going to run again. And if I win, hopefully I'm going to reevaluate this because that organization cannot claim to represent the veterans because there's a Pew poll from, I think it was like 2019. Uh, they said that only 33% of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans think that the Iraq war was quote worth it. And only like it was like 38 percent for the Afghanistan war. And this was in 2019 before the disastrous uh, pullout. Right. So we left Afghanistan, lost it to the Taliban in the span of hours. And it's like there's no way that 38 percent is that high anymore. That's it's got to be down in the 20s. Like there's nobody that 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 served over there that thinks that all of that to taking 20 years of, of like it's like you said, like blood and money and all that over there. Like we spent all that time and yeah. it went from the Taliban to the Taliban, nothing, yeah. nothing to show for it. And so I was saying like, like the military you, contractors got a lot to show for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Raytheon's super, super stoked about that war. And they, they want, they want uh, So now like they're, they're beating the war drums against Iran. And if anybody's familiar with geography at all, Iran is like the worst parts of Afghanistan with the worst, worst parts of Iraq combined with more landmass. And it like with a more with a superior military and like uh, it's just not not even comparable. It's going to be worse than both those wars combined, like without question. Yeah. And, and, I mean, you got to wonder, you know, 30 trillion dollars in debt our our recruitment rates uh, yes. for uh, for the military are as low as they've ever been. They're having trouble recruiting people. I think it's probably a combination of factors of, you know, one, I think kind of the physical health of our younger generation is not what it was in, in past generations, but also just yeah. like who would sign up? I mean, the morale is terrible. I mean, yeah. you know, two decades of forever wars that Congress doesn't even care about enough to give people the dignity of like signing their names to it and articulating a clear mission. Like why would you sign up for the military? I hear this over and over again. And it seems mm -hmm. like, I don't know if like they, they, they can't put two and two together. Like, like yeah. why recruitment rates are so low. It, I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, it just makes you wonder like if, if, if they want to launch a war with Iran, mm -hmm. if they want to pick a fight with Russia, they're talking about war with China, like yep. they, they defending got Taiwan for uh, microchips. Yeah. Like they've, they've got so many enemies. They're arbitrarily adding to the enemies list. It's like one thing to say, Hey, we're rival with this country. We're going to compete with them economically, but no, like yeah. we're always looking for the next fight to pick. It's like, who's going to fight these wars. Yeah. And it makes me wonder. So I remember a few years back, you know, there was legislation 
in Congress to uh, expand the military draft to not to not just men, but also to women. And of course, at the time, you know, they say, well, this is about equality. This is about um, of course, we haven't had the active use of the military draft since since um, since the Vietnam War, ever since Milton Friedman kind of really put the stake in the heart of, of, of conscription and we moved yeah. towards an all volunteer military. But but you have people. So it seems like, oh, hey, great equality and all of that, because this isn't a real thing. Right. There isn't a real threat that they might bring back the draft. Mm-hmm. But um but you hear some of these congressmen, both Republicans and Democrats, on the floor of Congress talking talk about they're dreaming about a day where it's like there might come a day when we need everyone, regardless of race and creed and gender, yep. to funnel them into the war machine and the meat grinder. And it's like, yep. like boy, you know, all of this talk of equality, it sounds wonderful until you think about what it's for. Yeah, It's for taking our sons and our daughters into into wars that frankly they don't even care enough to declare no um how do you so i i don't know if you're very familiar with kind of that that effort that's been on the federal level try to expand the draft interestingly enough i do have a bill filed right now that i'm going to be speaking on on thursday it was kind of a shot across the bow for this it's uh like selective service sanctuary so uh it would be that the new hampshire police and anybody cannot cooperate with the federal government to draft with the draft like we can't stop the draft but if like they were to come uh scoop up uh draft dodgers or something like that we wouldn't cooperate with the federal government in that respect it's probably gonna die but you know it's the next, it was something I had a brainchild. I was like, I'm going to just yeah. uh, shoot across, uh, you know, the, the entire, actually the purpose of that was to uh, see how SFAC would react. And they also unanimously opposed it, despite the fact that half the dudes on there got drafted in the seventies. So you know, it, it makes really, no sense to me. <laughs> you know, I, you know, look, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a military veteran. So I, some, some ways I want to stay in my lane and not kind of criticize folks, but, but it does make you wonder why, you know, you're talking about earlier, like, why is there this generational divide? I mean, yeah. I mean, considering, I mean, Vietnam is held up as like the classic example of a war that should never have been fought. That was completely, yeah. completely built on false pretenses. And boy, the body count. I mean, yeah, it's just atrocious. I mean, this is my father's generation. I, you know, yeah. I know he very nearly got called up just before. Um, well, just before uh, it ended. But um, boy, you know. It's like people learned some of the lessons from that. Yeah. I, but, I don't know how to explain it. I, I don't know how to explain like the, the generational gap. I, I, some of the guys on my committee are uh, Vietnam veterans and they were 100% behind defend the guard. The moment yeah. they heard it, like they were with us the entire way. And I'm just like, so th- I've had allies that came that served during that, but the, the voting members of SFAC and even some of the guys at my local VFW were just like, well, I don't know. We don't want the United States to be weaker and it's like, what do you mean weaker? Do you mean like forward deployed? Like, or do you, because them not being here makes the U.S. weaker. Right. Us, us not having like, whether it's like foreign invasion, invasion aside, like if we get smashed with like a nor'easter or like massive flooding from rains or something like that, they're not going to be here to help. Like the one story we that all the defend the guard advocates talk about is the Louisiana in 2005 with the Hur- Hurricane Katrina. 
Like the right. there was there was two big units from the uh, Louisiana Guard that were in Kuwait and Af- in uh, Kuwait and Iraq, and they were not available. Not only were they not available, they had a lot of their equipment that they could have used was deployed overseas. So they had dudes coming from all over the U.S. down there, and it it's like that's the kind of like instability and not being safe at home that the, this bill's trying to stop. Like it's it's not just about invasion. It's not just military stuff. Like the guard is there to help. Like even even right. during COVID, right? Like it whether or not you liked it, like I, I I think the whole thing was a mistake. But like if if let's say a real pandemic comes down the pipe and we want to use the guard to help, you know, with whatever, they're not going to be here. They're going to be in Jordan, apparently, in Syria, and they're going to be God knows they might be in Yemen in like next week. Who the hell knows, right? Or at Iran by the end of the month. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 um, I mean, I know in New Hampshire and in Maine, I mean, we recently got slammed with, with, with some tremendous storms. Yep. Um, I know it was bad in New Hampshire in Maine. It was, I think it was even worse. Like it, the coast just got ravaged yep. by these, this, this freak windstorm and people we, we were actually, we, we sent a, a Black Hawk from our, our a guard unit or a national or air guard over to help uh, Burlington, Vermont. Cause it was under like their state house was underwater. Wow. Like, that could have been one asset that was not available if it was over in yeah. Kuwait when they sent the sent our guys over there. Yeah, because like they just got back from uh, from Kuwait like uh, was it three four months ago? Yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you. Let me ask you. You know, this is something. You know, I, my my good friend Aaron Rollins. Um, um, I remember several years back he he posed this to me. Um, he told me, you know. Um. One of his concerns, not just about, you know, our, our, our National Guardsmen not being here for domestic emergencies when they arise, um, uh, losing lives overseas mm-hmm. unnecessarily in wars that can't be declared. I mean, these are obvious things. But I always remember, too, a concern he raised with me about how, um, you know, <laughs> the rules of war overseas – um, uh, are very different from how you want people to function domestically oh, yes. and how going through the trauma of those wars, when you bring people back home to serve domestically, how that might impact kind of how they react to yeah. things here in the States. Is that, is that something you've given any thought to? Yeah. It, also that, that has bleed over into like law enforcement, uh, by the way, like there, there's pieces yeah. of that. Um, so the, just to go back to Katrina, the, when a lot of those, uh, guard, a lot of the guard units were in Iraq, it, it, Afghanistan, God knows wherever they took active duty, uh, Marine Corps infantry units from Camp Lejeune and sent them down there. Guys that had been training for clearing ops, like, you know, kicking doors in and taking detainees. And they were down there for like humanitarian reasons. But a lot of these dudes are kind of jumpy because we're being trained for a combat situation. So it's like, it's like, oh, vehicles driving. And it's like, it's like you're in VBID, VV, uh, sorry, VBIED mindset. So you see like vehicles tearing off and stuff like that. And like, you know, they're raising weapons and it's like, wait, wait no, no, that's not what this is, guys. Like, calm down. Like they're the wrong people for the job. Yeah. And the same thing happens when you have like these guys that are trained for like re- search and rescue, whatever it may be. And they're here at the, the homeland. And then they spend a deployment, God knows wherever in a combat situation, they're going to come back. And that's in their brain now. Like, yeah. It, like it, it's exactly the PTSD thing. Like there's tons of stories about these guys, like guys that were in my unit, they'd be driving and like, they see a, a, a piece of trash on the side of the road when they're just driving their car in like, you know, Maryland or something. And they, they're going to swerve, even though it's just, it's just trash on the side of the road. But 
it's in their brain forever. Like that, that kind of thing, it's going to take years and years to just yeah. go back to normal. Like I know it, it like I, I drove a Humvee on my second deployment. Like we were doing a lot of vehicle stuff. And like, I know when I came back, it was like, like potholes are suspicious, like anything on the side of the road. Like a, yeah. it's like, I don't remember that trash bag being there. And it's like, I don't need to think it's literally trash day. I'm, I'm in friggin' Western Massachusetts. Nothing's going to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's I, like, I, yeah, I don't I don't know this for a fact, but but I I'd I heard uh, potentially that that was a contributing factor to what happened, you know, in Kent State in during the Vietnam era was. Y yeah, folks traumatized from the war itself. I wouldn't doubt it. And like the like with the law enforcement thing, a lot of these guys get out of like you come back home and like if if you were in something, let's say, like. Uh, administrative. And when you did your service, right, you can come out, you can kind of become like an accountant, do something like that. Your skills translate. But if you're a guy like me, you, you did infantry. If you didn't come out and go to like the GI bill and go to college, learn some new skills. A lot of those dudes would just transfer to law enforcement. And a lot mm -hmm. of times they'll just like, let you write in. It's like, Oh sure. Yeah. You're pretty good. We'll just give you like a real quick test and you're, we'll get, let you write in. We love veterans, but those guys, those are war fighters now. And they're on the streets. They're supposed to be like serving and protecting, but a lot of them, that's not like how they were trained. They weren't trained from the perspective of protect civil liberties and like due process and all that. They're, they they were trained with like kick doors in, we'll, qu we'll questions later type of yeah. situations. Like snatch them up, throw them in the back of the truck and, you know, some other guy will deal with it. Yeah. Well, it, it I'll tell you, seeing Defend the Guard pass the New Hampshire House of Representatives, I bet you the military industrial complex is getting nervous. Um What's next? It, go, it has to go on to the state Senate now, right? What, what do you see as yeah. the prospects there? And, and of course, this is a pr production of the Free State Project, which is a 501c3 nonprofit. We, we don't lobby, and we right. certainly can't tell people that if they want to see Defend the Guard pass, that they should call their state senators. That's not yeah. something I can tell them to do. But, right. but, uh, <laughs> but um, what's next for Defend the Guard, and uh, what do you see as the, prospe the prospects there? Uh, the Senate is a different beast. Um, there's only 24 senators. It's not like Wild West, like the State House, where like pretty much any, you know, yeah. young guy yeah. who's really motivated yeah, who's 400 in the us. House and like what is it in the Senate? Like 30? just 24. 24. 24. Yeah, right, we got 35 in the main Senate, so 24. It's an even more exclusive body. Okay. Yes, it is. Yeah, uh, that's that's the more difficult chamber to get through, and a lot of. Talk is that they kind of just represent the governor's extra vote. Sometimes they'll kill stuff silently so that he doesn't have to veto it like and yeah. be embarrassed. But I don't know they, we have some allies over there. Not many. I don't have a lot of relationships. I'm a freshman rep. I'm trying to work through with some of like the, the senior leadership that are the free stater types. I have been contacted by some people saying you need to talk to this person and this person. And if you get them, you get the rest of the Senate. So that's kind of the battle that I'm trying right now, trying to backdoor stuff. But it's, it's really hard when it's like, Oh, I, uh, hi, we've never met each other. I promise I'm not crazy, but I'm going to talk your ear off about foreign policy for the next 30 minutes. Yeah. Well, we'll probably have to have to get Derek Prue on at some point to update us on how things are going on the yes. uh, in the other chamber. Uh, is there a time frame? I mean, um, uh, for when we should expect kind of the action to be happening in the Senate. Uh, the the Senate. So I know they're chewing through some of their bills. They they, they had like a record amount of bills set, filed this year. I don't know when they're going to get to our retained bills. Like I just refreshed it. There's still no there's no hearing scheduled, yeah. and there's. 
there's supposed to be like rules where like they have to give like a week notice. So at least we can probably like, I want to flood the zone with as many veteran, like people, if, as many veteran free staters, there's tons of them. I've already met. I mean, I imagine after passing the house, there's gotta be a lot of excitement about there. Yes. Probably a lot of people, you know, yeah. who uh, want to be there for it. Yeah. And what's important is what I need them to do. And that the, because the problem is like the SVAC gets in there. So the, whatever the adjutant general says is whatever the adjutant general is going to say, we can refute the funding thing for sure. The SVAC has like the emotional underpinning to it where people are like, well, all the veterans are against it. If SVAC opposes it, what we need is like, Iraq and Afghanistan veteran free staters, anybody just show up and say, SVAC does not speak for me. Like I disagree with them. They, when they say unanimous, they are not including me or my entire generation. So yeah. they, like that, cause like, I, I remember the battle in my, in my committee was my chair, chair Moffat. He says, I have to, I have to really respect SVAC because SVAC is like, they're supposed to be the voice of the veterans in the, in the state. And if they oppose something with the, the committee's supposed to take that in under advisement and weight it heavily, regardless of who, how many people show up and speak against it. So, you know, when, when, we get over to the Senate. I don't really even know what committee is going to get it. They don't have a yeah. parallel for state federal relations on their side. It's probably going to be executive departments or something. And mm. that they're, they're going to probably have the same attitude where if SVAC says, no, we have to go. No. So what we need to yeah. do is flood the zone with vets saying they're not speaking for me. Yeah. There's a lot of with, with legislation like this, there's always a lot of inertia to overcome. And the only yeah. way to do that is, by people hearing from their constituents and realizing how much support there is. And, yep. you know, maybe, uh, maybe they might have some trouble in reelection season if, if uh, they're hearing from so many people and they ignore that again, yep. I'm not telling people what they should do. I can't <laughs> do that, but I'm just saying for educational purposes, I've seen how this, how this, how it works and how, when it doesn't work. So I'm happy to knock some doors. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, awesome. Hey, well, I really appreciate you coming on. Well, I, I appreciate what you're doing at the state house and what you all nice. have accomplished is historic. And any final thoughts you want to share with folks before we wrap up the show today? The activism part, uh, like you were saying, I know you, uh, so the free state project can't do it, but it's like everybody out there, like Diego Rivera has an amazing training, uh, and phone banking strategy that has been working. Um, I know that phone calls, flipped at least one vote for sure. I guarantee. Cause he told me so that he got uh, inundated with veteran phone calls and he had to, like, it was uh, one of the Democrats who voted with us in the committee that made it tie. So it came to the floor yeah. with an OTP motion. Phone calls are important. Act be like Twitter activism is not going to do it. It's great. It's great to get the message out there. But when, when push comes to shove, you got to do stuff. You have to show up for committee hearings. You have to do phone banking. You have to contact your state legislator, whoever it is. In this case, it's going to be a Senator. It, like, activism do stuff get out it's not all about twitter sometimes yeah D by the way shout out to diego rivera who's doing great work across the country he's with bring our troops home uh and and i'm, I'm always a little proud because uh one of diego's first campaigns that he worked on um was uh, was my u.s senate campaign so he, he was knocking <laughs> doors in maine with uh, activists from young americans for liberty it was kind of mm -hmm. the origins of kind of operation win at the door which has gone on to help elect so yeah. many freedom lovers across the country including so many in new hampshire and oh, diego yeah. is uh i mean diego is a force to be reckoned with and uh <laughs> yes. really appreciate really appreciate him bringing his his passion and his work on um on on the defend the guard effort maybe sometime we'll have to get him on the show and check oh, in absolutely. with him but he's doing great work yeah. well representative 
Mannion, I really appreciate you being the very first guest on the Porcupine Report. And um, keep it up at the State House. I am. I'm. I'm. It makes me proud knowing that I am. You know, I'm leaving my own state of Maine, which I love very much, but is sadly kind of trending in the wrong direction when it comes to freedom and liberty. And I'm coming to New Hampshire mm-hmm. to help. You know, spread the message that you know we've got to concentrate liberty-loving people in New Hampshire to keep New Hampshire free, to keep mm-hmm. that one flame of liberty in New England from being snuffed out by mm-hmm. by the progressives. All it takes is one election, right? That's um, true, yeah. So um, it makes me proud to see the New Hampshire legislature doing major accomplishments for the cause of liberty and for our troops and our soldiers like like you all pulled off. So so thank you so much for your work. Yep. It means a lot. Dude, th- thanks for all the kind words. Thanks for having me on. This is this was fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you, Representative. All right, everyone. Um, so thank you so much for tuning in. One f- uh, few final things to note before we wrap up the episode here. First, uh, I told you earlier about Porcupine Day coming up on uh, this Saturday, February 3rd, I really hope to see you there. Um, but also another event coming up in the near future is the New Hampshire Liberty Forum. We're going to have amazing keynote speakers at the New Hampshire Liberty Forum. This is going to be in March, uh, fr- fr- Friday, March 15th through Sunday, March 17th. You can get your tickets at nhlibertyforum.com. If you're watching the video version, you'll see the link right there at the bottom of the screen. We've got great keynote speakers. We're going to have Glenn Jacobs. You may know Glenn Jacobs. Not only is he the mayor of Knox County, Tennessee, an adamant, liberty-loving individual himself, he is also known by his alter ego, Kane, in the WWE professional wrestling. He's probably the only person in the world who can body slam you while quoting Mises and Rothbard. So you're going to want to check him out at the New Hampshire Liberty Forum. He's going to be speaking uh, on Saturday evening. And then Friday evening, we're going to have economist and professor at George Mason University, Brian Kaplan. I'm looking forward to hearing him speak as well, as well as so many great speakers who are coming to join us at the New Hampshire Liberty Forum. So you can grab your tickets at nhlibertyforum.com before prices go up on February 1st. I know there's a short window from when this episode is airing to uh, to the price increase. So you're going to want to move quick. nhlibertyforum.com. Well, we've got early bird pricing. Get it. Get your ticket soon. And if you join us this Saturday at Porcupine Day, remember fsp.org slash pork day with discount code pork report. You can get a discount there. Um, you can also at, at Porcupine Day, you can get a discount for the New Hampshire Liberty Forum. So two events, two discounts. What a deal. Don't miss out. Come join us. I see you. I'll see you Saturday and then see you uh, in March for Liberty Forum. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. Again, this has been our first episode. I'm going to be coming to you once a week, every Wednesday. Be sure to watch out whether you're watching on a video on any of our platforms with the Free State Project, or you're listening in the audio podcast feed on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. I really appreciate you joining us for being a part of what we're doing. And furthermore, my opinion is the Federal Reserve should be destroyed. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>